Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. Adam and I are coming to you from New York City, where last night we hosted a somewhat surprisingly successful event. More on that in a bit. And this week is also our first bi-coastal episode of The Read Out Loud. Rebecca is recording from STAT's new San Francisco outpost. It's Thursday, April 5th, and here's what's on the docket this week. We talked to veterans of the biotech buy side about their best investment ideas, the joys of selling short, and how the game has changed. Ari Beldegrun and David Chang spun CAR-T magic at Kite Pharma. Can they sprinkle the same fairy dust on a new approach to CAR-T? Alchemies became the latest drug maker to get hit with a dreaded refuse to file letter. What does this say about the FDA's supposed turn toward quote-unquote flexibility? And everyone is mad at Mark Zuckerberg over consumer data. But a new scandal over a dating app that shared users' HIV status raises big questions about genetic and health data privacy. But first, a word from our sponsor. At Takeda, we work tirelessly every day to serve the needs of our patients. We aim to earn the trust of society and our customers through our integrity, fairness, honesty, and perseverance. We strive to be best in class and won't stop until we help create better health and a brighter future for people around the world. Learn more by visiting us at Takeda.com. So guys, I heard you had an event in New York last night. What did you guys talk about? We did, Rebecca. Yeah, it was great. We uh, had a kind of a standing room crowd uh, to for a panel of Biotech buy-side investors. We had uh, Adam Stone from Perceptive Advisors, Nate Sadegi from Palcon Capital, and Mark Mikernini, who's a private investor today, but uh, formerly was with Visium and Deerfield. So yeah, Adam, I was curious, what, what stood out to you when we sit, did this sort of fireside chat with these men who make their money picking stocks? We sort of built it as an unfiltered conversation with the veterans of the biotech buy-side scene. And, and it was really a wide-ranging discussion. I thought one of the more interesting things we talked about was their backgrounds, that you know, among the three of them, there's no, there's no MDs, uh, there's no PhDs. They sort of are almost self-taught. Uh, and you know, that's an increasingly challenging thing to do today with the science getting so complex. And that was one thing they all kind of agreed on, is that if they had to apply for their current jobs today, they probably couldn't get them. And I think Adam Stone made, I think he was joking, but it was sort of a half joke that they don't hire people without PhDs nowadays at Perceptive. Yeah, it's true. I think, you know, they, they, they sort of came up in the business sort of in the late 90s, early 2000s when, you know, the science was a little bit less complex than it is today. Um, but also, I think it was interesting to hear them talk about how they got to where they are today, you know, just doing a lot of reading of the scientific literature, attending tons of medical conferences, you know, kind of learning from really smart people, not only about the science of biotech, but also kind of how to apply that to investing. And we did, of course, talk about stocks, it being a room full of stock pickers. And one thing that I thought was interesting, when we asked them what their best calls had been, they were quite often companies that had been sort of left for dead by the market, where they could make sort of a counterintuitive bet that might come through. Did that stand out to you? We asked each of them to kind of talk about a long idea, something that they, that they did really well with. Uh, and each of them talked about the companies that sort of the common theme was these were companies that had been blown up or that were sort of like left for dead by other investors, but they saw value. Um, you know, Mark talked about neurocrine biosciences, which, you know, in the old days had this failed sleep drug and then kind of pivoted to a drug for endometriosis. Um, 
you know, Adam Stone talked about Amicus Therapeutics, which had to, a series of setbacks, but then you know, that kind of provided them an opportunity to kind of get in on, on some really exciting orphan disease drugs. And then lastly, you know, Nate mentioned Arena Pharmaceuticals, and what do we think about when we think about Arena Pharmaceuticals these days? A bad weight loss drug. Yes, yeah, so a, a really bad weight loss drug that basically failed commercially. Um, but what, as Nate mentioned, was the company's chemists were actually pretty good at synthesizing drugs that were essentially sitting on the shelf until very recently, and now they're showing a lot of promise and the stock has, has moved up. Another common theme, and I don't remember how this came up, maybe I brought it up. Uh, I asked about aducanumab, which is the everybody's watching Alzheimer's drug from Biogenetic, and there was kind of a strange consensus among the panel, which is that it's going to fail. Yes, I mean, Mark was really emphatic, and, and Mark, for, for people who don't know, he's, his expertise is sort of in neuroscience, and that's kind of where he's kind of focused a lot of his energies in investing. Uh, and he was pretty emphatic in that, in saying that the Biogen aducanumab phase three study is going to fail. And one thing that kind of caught my attention as well from Adam Stone, just thinking in the minds of the people at biotech companies who prepare these investor decks and prepare for presentations, all these investors, he said that he hears about 500 of these pitches every year. Which was amazing to me, like 500 company meetings a year. That's more an than incredible one a day. number. But that 450 of them immediately leave his brain the second he walks out the room. Right. I mean, it's like, it's like this incredible funnel that he has to go through, meet with 500 companies and maybe find 50 that you want to sort of, you know, you want to have a second date with. The other thing I thought was funny was, you know, on the other side, Mark, when he was talking about when he worked at Visium, was the, the, just the insane amount of preparation that they would take to going into a management meeting. I mean, he even talked about like how they would sit around and talk about sequencing questions, like how the order of the questions that they were going to ask management. And this being a panel of uh, hedge fund guys, uh, we did, we did bring up short selling too, didn't we? Yeah, memorable to me was Mark pointing out that according to him, there is no greater joy than when you execute a well-timed and well-thought-out short position. You could see it on his face. It's sort of like he lit up when, when he said that, right? Right, and, and, and Nate made an interesting point, which is that short selling is often more difficult than people think with respect to just betting on a company to fail. You can be correct, but completely take a bath if some deus ex machina thing happens and or if your timing is incorrect. So he mentioned a, sort of a bum drug that he was betting against, not realizing that Johnson & Johnson would buy the company in question for some pipeline asset that didn't matter, and then he's in the hole in a short position. Yeah, and I think Adam Stone also mentioned that short selling today in biotech has gotten a lot harder, uh, partly because the science has gotten better, the success rate of drugs has gotten better. Uh, he mentioned, you know, back in the old days, he said it was like finding great biotech shorts was like shooting fish in a barrel. Today, it's a lot more difficult, and as a result, you know, at Perceptive, they're much more net long they are today than they were ever in, in years past. Well, guys, sorry I couldn't be there. It sounded like a great event. Maybe next time you all can come out here and we can do an event in San Francisco. Hey, I'd like that. So CAR-T pioneers Ari Beldegrun and David Chang made more money than they could ever need by selling Kite Pharma to Gilead. But instead of retiring to a tropical island somewhere, they're launching a new company to compete with Gilead. So the company is called Allogene, and it's going to try to develop off-the-shelf CAR-T. The idea is that the product could be used to treat any eligible cancer patient. So that's in contrast to the first two approved CAR-Ts, Gilead's Yascarta and Novartis's Cambria. Those two have to be personalized for each individual patient. So Rebecca, what exactly are Ari and David going to be working on? So they raised a bunch of money to buy these assets that had been controlled by Pfizer. 
But, you know, these assets they bought, no one was super excited about them before all of this. The lead asset being spun out called UCAR-T19 has generated really lackluster early data in children, in adults. The results just have not wowed. And the other 16 assets that Allogene is getting out of this, they are preclinical. They have not been tested in any patient. So looking at the Pfizer angle, as I was reading over this, I was curious as to whether maybe history will remember them as having jumped the gun on CAR-T in the first place. If you look back to like 2014 and 2015, Amgen invested in Kite, and Kite now has a product on the market. Celgene bet on Juno and later acquired Juno, and Juno looks to be in like third place in CAR-T. And that all looks pretty smart. Pfizer made its bet on Selectus, which was earlier stage, and as you mentioned, has not exactly wowed people and has had some hiccups. And it kind of seems like Pfizer, in, in doing this licensing deal, is being forced to admit that it acted a little too early. And it also seems to be an admission of failure by Pfizer in some respect. I mean, you know, sure, they're taking a 25% you know, stake in Allergene, but they're really kind of moving out of the CAR-T space. And the thing that they proffered was something you, you kind of get used to hearing, which is that new technologies are better served by being handled by small, dedicated biotech companies. And that's fine, and I'm familiar with that logic. But what it negates is that Novartis, which is a gargantuan Swiss pharma giant, is actually in first place in CAR-T and had the first approval and is kind of in the vanguard of this whole space. Let's talk about Gilead. How did Gilead come out in all of this? The thing that comes to mind is like, is there a Gilead CAR-T brain drain going on here? You know, I think losing Chang was probably inevitable, but you know, after just three months and, and you know, he, he basically he left in March, um, you know, and then he goes and joins a, a competing company. You gotta kind of say like, ouch. And that was super key. If you recall, when Gilead acquired Kite, they kept the Kite branding. It was Kite Pharma, a Gilead Sciences company. And I always perceived that as sort of an employee retention gambit because Gilead has sort of a nascent oncology program, but they didn't have a CAR-T thing, which is infinitely more complicated than just designing a targeted molecular therapy for cancer. And so now it feels like there's a little bit of a risk that scientists might want to follow Ari and David to the new company and do this whiz-bang thing with the team that made them so much money. And Rebecca, you, uh, you kind of followed up on this, didn't you? Yeah, so I trolled the LinkedIn profiles of all of the 190 people on LinkedIn who had listed Kite as a former employer. Let me tell you, it took a while. But here's what I found out. So, you know, as of last summer, Kite had more than 700 employees. So since that acquisition, I was able to find just 22 departures from Kite noted on LinkedIn. So that was a mix of scientists, clinical types, administrative people, and, you know, all the usual caveats apply. People don't update their LinkedIn. Some people don't even use LinkedIn. People leave jobs for all sorts of reasons. Uh, but I think it's safe to say that there have been some departures, but not evidence on LinkedIn, at least, that there's been some mass exodus from Kite in the Gilead era. Not yet, at least. And Rebecca, uh, you had a great anecdote in the story that you wrote about Allergene, about you know, how, how the startup and how this all came about. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this was real reporter's catnip. Sometimes sources will just tell you these great stories. I didn't have to ask, but uh, David Chang uh, told me kind of the genesis story of the new company. Uh, so last November 3rd, um, he was at the Waldo Astoria Hotel in Beverly Hills, this big fancy new hotel that just opened recently uh, at a restaurant for a celebratory dinner to toast uh, the Kite acquisition uh, for Gilead. And at the cocktail reception, a banker came up to him and basically made a, a proposition, you know, would you and Ari consider uh, developing Pfizer's assets here? And, you know, Chang just said, 10 seconds in, he 
something clicked. You know, he said, let's talk to Ari together. And that was kind of the start uh, of the, uh, the new company. I was going to say nothing like that has ever happened to me at a celebratory dinner, but I realized I don't really get invited to many celebratory dinners, so maybe the bankers are awaiting me. And this was so L.A. too, wasn't it? You know, they're at a dinner celebrating a marriage, and David Chang is already talking about a divorce. So Alchemy's got some bad news this week when their depression drug elicited what's called a refuse-to-file letter from the FDA. Rebecca, what's a refuse-to-file letter? So it's basically when the FDA sends you a dreaded letter saying that they refuse to review your application seeking approval for your drug. It might be because you did something wrong administratively or your data aren't good enough for them to even bother looking closely at. So a refuse-to-file letter is sort of like when a bouncer stops you at the velvet rope because your outfit is all wrong. And what's interesting about this is not necessarily particular to alchemies, but there's been sort of a spate of refuse-to-file letters lately. There was one for Celgene and another for PTC Therapeutics in the past. And the FDA kind of swiping left on these companies before even looking at the data sort of stands in contrast with what had become, I feel like, the conventional wisdom in biotech, which was that under Scott Gottlieb and even prior to him that the FDA was becoming more flexible and more lenient in drug applications, but slamming the door shut like this would seem to argue for the opposite. Yeah, so to, you know, to kind of get a little bit more color on this, uh, I called up Zach Brennan. He's a reporter with RAP's Regulatory Focus. And, you know, and I asked him to explain you know, why the FDA typically issues these refuse-to-file letters. Uh, here's what he had to say. It's hard to generalize about what it means, but usually it's a specific issue in filling out an application or in not completing an application properly. It usually has nothing to do with the actual data that's in the application. It's more of like an administrative mistake rather than, hey, the data in this application don't look like they're gonna win approval. So I think what was interesting here was, you know, in contrast to what Zach said, you know, the refuse to file letter that the FDA sent to Alchemies specifically cites, quote, insufficient evidence of overall effectiveness for the proposed indication, you know, which in this case is treatment-resistant depression. The FDA also told Alchemies that they were gonna need to conduct additional clinical trials, that's trials plural, uh, in order to resubmit the drug to them. Uh, you know, in many ways, the FDA's refuse to file letter actually reads like a rejection letter that you would see at the end of a review. You know, and this was, f this was like far from, from just Alchemies forgetting to dot some I's or signing a form, you know, this was kind of FDA telling the company that the drug was just not good enough. And how bad is this for Alchemies? I mean, it's terrible. You can see what happened to their stock price. And CEO Richard Pops had been talking up that the pathway seemed fairly clear. If you look over the transcript from former conference calls, he seemed confident that the FDA at least hadn't shut the door on them, that they had a good chance. And I think the market was surprised as well. The, I spoke last night with a sell side analyst who I will protect the anonymity of, but what she was saying was she was prepared for this drug to get rejected, but next year. She didn't think that they would actually get a refuse to file this soon. Yeah, there were a lot of people, I think, who who were sort of skeptical about the drug and thought that it would get rejected, but that the FDA would review it. And I, I did go back and you, you go back and look at some of the comments that Alchemy CEO Richard Pops has made over the last few months about this drug. You know, 
he was pretty confident and he was telling the public or telling investors, you know, that they had all the data that they needed and that they had these FDA meetings in advance of the filing. Uh, he was sending the signal that the FDA was okay with their data, which again, which, which was so surprising when we see the actual, we didn't see the actual letter, but at least the letter as described to us by Alchemy is how, you know, the, the FDA basically came out and really dinged them on the clinical data. Without delving too much into Alchemy's data, the, the situation was they had two large-scale trials that came up negative, one that came up positive, and they made the claim that the totality of the data supported approval. And so, Adam, I'm curious, are there any companies in a similar situation coming up on an FDA review who might get a refused file letter of their own? Right. So people are sort of kind of spinning this forward and saying, are there any other companies at risk? And I think the one that does come up is intracellular therapies. They have a drug for schizophrenia, which is sort of in the same situation where they had one successful phase three clinical trial, and then they had a second phase three trial which failed where the placebo actually did better than their drug. Uh, and so people are sort of looking at that and saying, is that also at risk? They haven't filed yet. They're gonna be filing in the middle of the year and people are wondering what's going to happen. One thing I've heard from a lot of people, you know, processing this information in the context of the approval for Sarepta Therapeutics Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy Drug, which was sort of controversial because people thought the FDA was being too lax, is that there is a differentiation between a rare disease like Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy and how the FDA will treat new treatments for that versus something like major depressive disorder, which is a larger population. And so it's almost like the exceptions the FDA is willing to make for orphan diseases and rare diseases is the carrot, but these RTFs that we've seen over the past year are kind of the stick. Right, and I think what you see here is the fact that it's not just solely about the drug and the data, but it's in the context in which that is placed, the disease that they're, that they're targeting. You know, some diseases are obviously more serious than others. There are diseases where there are multiple treatments already available, and then there are diseases where there are no currently marketed or currently approved drugs. All that sort of gets thrown into the gamish of this, of this kind of review cycle, and that's how the FDA makes these kinds of decisions. So Alchemies is going to appeal this decision, and I think that will give us kind of more of a window of the limits of the FDA's much-vaunted flexibility. The Cambridge Analytica scandal is dominating the headlines, and rightly so. Control over your purchases and your political posts is becoming a huge issue. But there's another and arguably even more important privacy story that's kind of flying under the radar, and that's about health and genetic data. So BuzzFeed reported earlier this week that the gay dating app Grindr is sharing its users' HIV status with two other companies. After that story came out, Grindr said it would stop sharing this information. And so the Grindr scandal got me thinking about some recent tweets from 538's Maggie Korth-Baker, who made a really good point. You know, she pointed out that if you're worried about what Facebook is doing with your political views, you should be really worried about what private companies are doing with your genetic information. And, you know, if you look at polling data, when people are asked to rank how sensitive they perceive different types of data to be, you know, here's what they say. They say data about my health and my medications are among the most sensitive data I have, second only to my social security number. You know, people care about this much more than uh, political views and purchases. And this whole issue of health and genetic data privacy has attracted the attention of Senator Chuck Schumer, who, as you may recall, sounded the alarm about the perils of eating Tide Pods before anybody was talking about it. Here's what he had to say in November 2017 about the likes of 23andMe and Ancestry DNA. What those companies can do with all that data, your most sensitive and deepest info, your genetics, is not clear and in some cases not fair and not right. So Damien, what do we know about what the leading genetic testing companies are actually doing in practice right now? 
So the two biggest players here are 23andMe and Ancestry.com. So their individual policies vary, but in practice they work like this. These companies aren't selling your data to marketers who want to sell you things, but they are selling your de-identified data, if you consent to it, to drug companies, research institutions, and nonprofits for research purposes. And 23andMe has ambitions of its own to develop drugs with the help of all that aggregated data it's collected. Of course, all these safeguards sound nice in theory, but they raise big questions in practice. You know, companies can and do get hacked. We've seen that plenty of times in recent months. And it's becoming harder and harder to truly de-identify genetic data as we learn more and more about the genome. You know, in, in 2013, a uh, team at the Whitehead Institute uh, reported that they were able to figure out the identities of 50 people from DNA donated anonymously for scientific studies. And this was just using easily available internet databases. So circling back to Facebook, which is the current bete noir of data privacy, that's fertile ground for health-related data mining too, right? If you go into Facebook and you type any disease into the search bar, what will often come up are patient groups getting together on online digital communities to talk about that disease. They'll be talking about the drugs that they're taking. Those drugs may be experimental, they may be in clinical trials, or they may be currently marketed drugs. And all that information is out there available. People pay attention to it. Drug companies pay attention to it. Uh, investors pay attention to that. Um, and I'm not exactly sure whether the, those patients who are actively discussing those kinds of things know that they're being, they're being watched. And, you know, I haven't heard a peep about this in this current moment of really elevated concern about data privacy. You know, why do you think these issues have generated so much less outrage than the Cambridge Analytica scandal? One thing that occurs to me to answer that question is that there is no go-to horror story. I don't know of anyone who had their genome hacked, let's say, and then had that used against them in some sort of pernicious way. It's all a little bit theoretical. I think we all understand why one wouldn't want his or her genome widely available to anyone who wanted to download it, but because no one has been victimized in that sense, I think it hasn't really reached the attention of the people in Congress who are calling for the head of Mark Zuckerberg, for example. Of course, anytime there are victims, of a scandal, there's always going to be a victim number one. It is a brave new world out there. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Big thank you to Matthew Orr and Jeff Delvisio who produced our episode this week. And if you're listening right now, we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you think about the podcast, what you'd like to hear in the future. Ask us questions or just tell us how horribly wrong we are about everything we've said. You can do all of that by sending an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback. So thanks for listening.